This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We're in a series called The Storyteller, and uh, we're looking at various parables that Jesus taught. He is the great storyteller, and his parables reveal something about him to us. A parable is a comparison or a story that uses very familiar elements to its hearers. So Jesus takes things that people are all familiar with, a coin, a, a crop, Um, a a treasure, uh, different kinds of things, different kinds of people, things that are familiar, and he tells a story to reveal a truth that is often unfamiliar to the hearers. It's a truth that reveals something about Jesus, something about his kingdom, and we always find that it reveals something about us as well uh, and our need for him. So we've been looking at these various parables. If you're new, you really haven't missed much. We've only covered a few. Uh, We've talked about the parable of the the sower, which is uh, planting seeds in the soils, and it was a parable that taught about the importance of listening to God's word, to listening to what Jesus tells us. Uh, Then we spent two weeks on a parable about a a loving father who had two lost sons and uh, talked about how he loved them. It's a picture of God the Father's love for us and sending Jesus for us as well. Today's parable has a different tone than all of the parables we've looked at today because uh, before today, because today's parable is a warning. Uh, In this one, Jesus is informing his hearers that there is an impending danger and he wants them all to be alert to it and he wants us to be alert to it as well. So we're reading from Luke 12 uh, beginning in verse 13. Jesus is teaching and then it begins this way. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word that you reveal truth to us. We want to begin by confessing our own ignorance and our own need for truth because none of us arrive at truth on our own. Uh, We need to have truth revealed to us. 
And so we ask you in this time that you would, uh, Holy Spirit of God, that you would shine your light on this truth, that you would open up our hearts, that where uh, things are dark or foggy or fuzzy to us, they would become crystal clear. And that the message of this parable would ring uh, ring in our hearts and minds, that, that if you are giving a, an alarm, if you are sounding an alarm and giving a warning as you did to these first hearers, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. We pray that there would not be a fool in the house today. We pray that we might all gain wisdom. We pray that you would give us the gift of repentance to repent from foolishness and to come running to you to find wisdom in you, we, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here's the context of the parable. Jesus is teaching to a large crowd. Look back at verse 1 in chapter 12. It says, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began, uh, that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, and he begins to teach them. And uh, what he's doing is he's teaching in this chapter various obstacles to following him. So he's saying, if you want to follow me, there's going to be certain barriers or obstacles that you're going to face. Here's the first one. In verse uh, 1 back there, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. This is the same thing we studied last week. Be careful for those who don't pursue Jesus, but try to set up a lot of religious rules and try to be okay with God by keeping the rules as opposed to seeing their need for Christ, the Savior. So Jesus talks a lot about that. And so I feel compelled to talk a lot about that. And we spent two weeks on that. So he says, be careful for the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who are religious people. Be careful that they think they're okay because they're keeping all the rules on the outside. So he warns them against them. The next thing he does is he warns them against, uh, um, uh, he talks to them about the barrier of persecution and how to deal with that. Verse um, four, uh, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear, fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. So he's saying, don't worry about people who resist you. You're going to be resisted as a follower of Jesus. Don't worry about that. Focus on the Lord, the judge. And so in the midst of saying, here's barriers, legalism, uh, you know, dead religion, uh, that's a barrier. Persecution and, and fear of persecution, that's a barrier. And then he gives this very interesting story because in the middle of that, a guy basically interrupts him, verse 12, someone in the crowd, there's thousands there. It says in verse one, there's thousands there. And a guy in the crowd, while Jesus is talking about the father can send someone to hell, while Jesus is talking about be careful of the religious leaders, Jesus is saying these profound things. And some guy wants Jesus to referee an argument for him. And he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I mean, talk about telling on your brother when you're like exposing your brother to, to God himself. That's a pretty big deal. And so this guy, he wants, he wants his, his inheritance. He wants money. And so he's like, now's a great time. I've got God in the flesh. He could sort this out now instead of waiting for eternity. Uh, let's get this sorted out right now. And so he says, tell my brother, give me my money. 
And uh, Jesus responds, uh, sir, you you don't really need me to arbitrate that. I'm not here to arbitrate disputes. It wasn't unusual that they would do that because rabbis did settle family disputes. So it wasn't really, uh, the guy's not completely out of left field by asking Jesus, a teacher, to take care of this. But Jesus says, you you don't need an arbitrator, sir. You need a parable. And he's going to tell the man a parable. Now, if Jesus customizes a parable for you, that's usually not a good thing in the Bible. It's not like one of those deals where you can write in and they'll write a storybook and put your kid's name in it. It's not like that. It's like, I'm going to write a story and it's going to say, and Johnny went to the zoo. No, that's cute and endearing. This is terrifying when Jesus has a custom-made parable for you. Now, he loves the man and he's telling it in love, but he's also, well, he's nailing the guy. And uh, here's, here's what he says. Uh, Verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. The NIV says, uh, watch out for all kinds of greed. Be on your guard for all kinds of greed. Covetousness is the desire for something that God's not provided you. Uh, It's wanting something that someone else has. It could be their possessions. Um, uh, the, the Ten Commandments that warn against, that forbid coveting actually said it could be someone else's spouse. So if you want someone who's not your spouse uh, in that way, that's covetousness or wanting someone else's possessions or their position or their gifts or whatever. And here he says greed in the NIV. Be careful for all kinds of greed. Now let me just say this before we jump into this, lest any of us separate ourselves from the story. If Jesus is talking to a few thousand peasant farmers who live on a subsistence, uh, who live on very little. And he's concerned that they could be attacked by greed. They could give in to covetousness. Is there any chance that in Frisco, Texas in 2016, this might apply to us in the crowd? If he's talking about people that don't have, if he's talking about people whose entire dwelling would fit in your closet, uh, we, we are seriously in need of the same warning that he provided to them. So he tells them a story. Watch out, and then he tells them a parable. He says that there was a rich guy who had a great harvest. So again, he's telling familiar things to them. Not so familiar to us necessarily. There's probably not any full-time farmers in the congregation. There might be, but not many of us are full-time uh, farmers uh, in, the, in the room here this morning. Uh, but that was Jesus's audience. So he tells them something very familiar. He says, this guy is uh, a farmer. He's wealthy and uh, he has a great harvest. The way he describes it is his land produced plentifully. So he has a ton of crops and he has such a huge harvest that he doesn't have the place to store all his crops. He can't eat all this grain at once. And uh, so he doesn't even have any place to store it. So what he does, is, as Jesus describes it, is uh, he, he comes up with a plan. He comes up with a plan so that he can keep all of his crop for himself. It's a plan so that none of the crop would be wasted and he could have it all. And, and, and he, he speaks to his own soul about this. Uh, this is a way of Jesus in the, st- uh, in the story telling us what the guy was thinking, not just what he did, um, but what he was thinking. And so verse 18 tells us what he's thinking, then he speaks to his soul. He says, ver- t- uh, verse 18, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains 
and goods. So he has this plan. What I'll do, I don't have enough storage. I'll just tear down what I have. I'll build huge barns. I'll store all my grain and all my goods. So that's the way I'll take care of my excess. I'll just build larger containers to hang on to it all. Then he speaks to his soul. And what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a window into the man's thoughts. He's showing us why did he do this? He's, he's getting at the man's core motivation because we all have a core motivation about the decisions we make. We all are motivated in some way. And here we get a window into his core motivation. Verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What's his motivation? Well, he's simply saying this, soul, you don't have to worry about food. You don't have to worry about finances. You don't have to worry about provisions at all. Soul, you are secure. That's what he's saying. You're secure. You're set. You are home free. The crop is so great and you've devised this plan to store it all so now you don't have to worry about anything and that cause for relaxing. Finally, we can relax. That cause for eating, drinking, and celebrating because soul, you are home free. Now in our culture, we would say this is a man to be admired. This is a man to be emulated. We would say, well, I want to be that guy. When we're hearing the story, he's going, great. How do I get, I mean, if you just heard the first part of the story, you'd be, great. Jesus is telling a story about how to be set for life. I'll go to that seminar. What do I need to do? Sign me up, Jesus. That sounds really, really good. That's our dream, is to have no money worries. I mean, think about that for a minute. If you were to say, I have no worries about money. I am facing the future with no needs in sight. I'm totally taken care of. I am financially independent. That, that's the goal of the game, we think. That's, you won. You won the game. We believe that if we were just financially secure, our burdens, our worries, our pressures, they'd all be done. I mean, if I didn't have to worry about paying the bills, if I didn't have to worry about saving for retirement, if I didn't have to worry about taking care of the kids' needs, if I didn't have to worry about this expense and that expense, then like the guy, I could say, soul, relax. Soul, eat, drink, and be merry. If I could reach that point, then finally, I'd be okay. That's the big burden on my back. If I could be free of that, then everything was okay, would be okay for me. But the story doesn't end there. See, there was one little thing he didn't anticipate, death. <laughs> oh, okay, De oh, forgot about that. There was one thing in his plan, in his life plan, Heard of writing, have you ever heard of writing a life plan? He wrote a life plan and he executed his life plan, except his life plan came up short. He, 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 he laid up all this treasure for himself and now game over. It's over. 
And God addresses him, verse 20, God said to him, fool. God calls him a fool. Now, God's not just messing around. Well, man, God, that's kind of mean, calling people names, you know, saying the guy's acting a fool, and that's rude. Why are you talking like that? No, fool is a biblical term with a very clear meaning in the Bible. Psalm 14.1 says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the Bible says that a fool is not just someone who's, you know, acting silly or uh, someone who's a little slow or someone who's kind of dense or it's not like just calling somebody stupid or some kind of insult. Biblically, a fool is someone who says there's no God. A fool is someone, and it's not just a hardcore, uh, thoughtful, philosophical atheist. A fool is someone who lives his or her life like there's no God. That's the biblical fool. Could be really smart. Uh, Could even go to church. Um, but a fool is someone who lives life like there's no God, like there is, there's no accountability. They live life with no reference to God. The Bible says that is a fool. And so this guy has lived as if there, as if God doesn't exist. He's lived as if he is unaccountable to God. He's got all his possessions. He's going to do with them what he wants. He's lived as if all of his stuff is really his He's acting like, this is all my stuff, and so I'll do what I want with my stuff, and and I'm going to lay it up for myself so that I have ample goods to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He says, for many years. But he hasn't been rich toward God. So the story that Jesus tells shows us he's not to be admired, he's to be pitied, because Jesus uses him as as a lesson, as an object lesson of what not to do how not to live your life. So that's the story. That's the parable Jesus tells. Uh, It's kind of got a gotcha to it because as he's going through the story, uh, everybody would be leaning in. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay. And then boom, gotcha. Fool. This day your soul is required of you. So what's the parable about? It's a pretty straightforward story, right? There's no, there's no details that we have to explain from the original Greek or from the Palestinian culture of the first century. It's pretty straightforward. It translates very easily into our culture. As a matter of fact, I know this parable actually being lived out. I had a friend when I lived in Southern California, and uh, he told me the story, literally, of his dad who worked his whole life and saved and, and, and got prepared. He was a smart guy and, and thought ahead, planned well for retirement, took his retirement money, bought an RV. They lived in Southern California, and they were going to go out to see the country to enjoy their retirement, and they did not even get out of the state. Loaded the RV, started driving the RV, did not even get out of the state of California before he had a heart attack and died. He told me that story. So it's a pretty understandable story. But what's it about? Is it a teaching that wealth is bad? Is the story that the great harvest that he had is not really desirable? Well, no, I don't think that's what the story is about. The Bible never uh, condemns wealth outright. The Bible never condemns wealth per se, but the Bible gives a lot of warnings like this one. It gives a lot of warnings about the dangers uh, of wealth, about the entrapment of wealth. So he's not just saying wealth itself is bad. It's, It's something else. Is he saying that saving is bad, that really godly living, the guy shouldn't have saved his crops, I mean, if he was really spiritual, he would have just given all the crops away, not had anything to eat for himself. And why is he saving? That's not trusting God. 
Well, that's not what the Bible teaches either. We could do a study this morning from the book of Proverbs and see that God uh, teaches that we should save, that it's wise to save. So this isn't a story saying that God is opposed to saving. Maybe it's a story about being wasteful, because what does the guy want to do with his retirement? He wants to eat, drink, and be merry. So maybe it's saying, you know what, don't take all that hard-earned uh, wealth that you've accumulated over the years and party. Uh, this isn't a time to be merry. God's opposed to being merry. Don't do that. But that's not what it's about either. As a matter of fact, uh, this is, was, I found this out this week in study. This is very interesting. Where he says, be merry, it is a word for party or celebrate. It's the exact word in the original language, the exact word that he uses in the parable of the lost sons that we looked at last week when the prodigal son comes home and the father welcomes him and throws a party. It's the exact same word. So Jesus uses the word elsewhere to say God throws these kinds of parties. Uh, it's going to say that three chapters later. So it's, it's, not, it's not that God is opposed to partying. Maybe it's teaching that the material world is bad and the spiritual world is good. I mean, wouldn't it be more godly to focus on spiritual things instead of material things like farming and barn building and wealth management? Those are so physical, earthy, material, that's evil. Spirit is good. So if he was, you know, off meditating, praying, that would be good. But working in his fields and, uh, you know, growing a great crop and being prosperous in his work, that is really ungodly. Well, no, the, the parable doesn't condemn his business practice at all. In fact, the Bible calls us from the very beginning of the Bible, the Bible teaches that we were created, Adam and Eve are the first people, were created, placed in a garden and called to work and to be fruitful. So work and fruitfulness is not bad. It's what we were created for. So it's not a parable about how bad it is to manage wealth and create wealth and these sort of things. So if it's not about wealth is bad, if it's not about saving is bad, and it's not about partying is bad, if it's not about material is bad. What is it about? Well, Jesus tells the story to correct this man's philosophy of life because this man has a false view of the meaning of life. He, he has a false view of the purpose of life. And the way we know that that's what it's about is because sometimes we have to interpret, we're not sure, but Jesus tells us that's what it's about in verse 15. He said to them, when the guy says, solve the, the dispute, Jesus says to them, Verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He's saying your life is not about what you possess. And he's going to go on to show that your life is about who possesses you. Your life is not about what you possess. The guy's all worried about getting his inheritance. And it's not like Jesus says, who cares about legal matters? It's not that he's saying that. He's saying, sir, you're way too worried about this. You're way too concerned. You're acting like your whole life is about that inheritance. Life is about something else. Life is not about your possessions. Life is about who possesses you. You see, in fact, life is a gift from God. And we all have life as a gift. We all have a certain number of days as a gift. And we are called to use what he gives us for his glory. Jesus calls that being rich toward God. 
He laid up treasures for himself when he should have been rich toward God, is what the final verse of the parable teaches. He's saying that to be rich towards God means that we live with a freedom so that our security is found in God and in trusting him. Security is not found in protecting ourselves from having to trust God by accumulating resources to insulate ourselves from needing God. See, this guy thinks if I can, in this case, accumulate enough, then I am independent and I won't have any needs. I won't have anything that I'm not prepared for. And and this is teaching that, no, your possessions can never be your security. You can't insulate yourself from trusting God. That's what we all want to do. But the whole purpose of life is to trust God. The whole purpose of life is to be secure in God. Listen, if you are here today and you know Christ and you are trusting in Christ, you are secure. I don't care what happens, you are secure because you are building your life on what Jesus said is a steady, solid foundation. If you don't know Christ and you are not trusting Christ for your life, then I don't care what your net worth is. You can't accumulate a great enough net worth to be secure. The person here who has nothing in the bank account today and knows Christ and is trusting him is completely secure. The person here who does not know Christ and has more digits in the bank account than we can even fathom, you are entirely insecure and you are headed for the exact eternal future that the guy in the story is. It's a story about where do you, what do you trust? This man says, I can relax, I can trust what I have. But that's not what life is like. We all live far more vulnerably than we realize. And everyone in this room is a blink away from eternity, a heartbeat away from eternity, I should say. A heartbeat away. So how do we respond? How do you apply? If it's about the philosophy of life, if it's about what life is really about, if it's about what we trust in and what we look to for security or to whom we look for security, how do we apply this? Well, in the simplest way possible, I would say we live like God owns it all. That's the purpose of the story. And and I'm going to show you that in a few ways. The rich fool didn't get that. He did not see God in everything. He did not see that God owns it all. And this shows up in some very clear, if you go back and read carefully, this shows up in some very clear places in the text, starting with the first line. I love that Jesus tells us what the story is about. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then the first two words of the parable give us a real clue where he's going. The land. Verse 16, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. The rich man produced plentifully? No. The work of the rich man produced plentifully? No. The, uh, his hired hands, the farm hands, the crew produced plentifully? No. The land produced plentifully. Now, they worked the soil, they planted, they tilled the soil, they harvest. But it was the land that produced. And why is that important? Because in an agrarian society, everybody understood that you were dependent for a good crop. You were dependent on rain. No rain, no crop. 
The locusts swarm in completely out of your control. Your crop is gone. A a farmer lived with an awareness of their dependence on rain, uh, on something outside of themselves to produce the crop. The man didn't produce the crop, the land produced the crop, which is an implicit way of saying God blessed the man. The man may have worked, but God provided for him. God grew the crop, God produced the wealth for the man. He was not independent as he thought. What he has came from God. What he has came from God. He thinks it's all his. He's very self-focused. Look at verses 17 through 19. Just look at the number of times we hear this man say, I and me, I and me. We don't want to be that guy that's always saying I and me. This is him. 17, he thought to himself, himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. These aren't random words in the text. Jesus is making a point in the way he tells the story. This guy is all I, me, mine. You don't get three words in the parable where he's speaking about himself that there's not a self-reference. Why? Because he doesn't see the land produced that God gave this. He sees I, me, mine. It is all mine. Jesus makes clear we don't really own anything. We don't really own anything. And I think there's a verse here that makes this more, perhaps, maybe not more, but as clear as any place in the scripture. And it's what God says to him in verse 20. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. He doesn't even own the most intimate, fundamental part of his existence, his soul. He can't even control his own soul, how long he will live. When God says, it's over, it's over, and he's accountable. I mean, we might think, I don't own my body, God owns me. Maybe we think that. We should think that. You don't own your body. God owns you. But that's even true of our inner person, our own soul. And he requires his soul of him. This this story goes really way beyond wealth because it is his soul that is called to account. This man is a fool because he lives as if he will never give an account for his stuff and he will never give an account for his soul. And Jesus is saying, I'm warning you. Jesus is saying, you should be hearing a siren while I'm telling this story. You should be looking in the mirror for flashing lights because there is impending danger for anyone who is not aware of this reality, that you are fundamentally accountable to God. And the great delusion that we all can live under is that we live as if we control things. And when we don't, we grasp for control. We say, I've got control issues. No, you want to be God. You don't have control issues. You want to sit on the throne of the universe and rule your life and not be accountable. And I know what that's like. I face the very same temptation. That's the natural delusion that I can control, that I can secure myself from trouble, that I can lay up ample goods for myself. He thought he was safe for many years and he did not make it through the night. 
I'm safe for many years. He did not make it through the night. God's, uh, God owns his life. His life was on loan. And God called the loan due when he least expected it. Your life is God's. It is on loan for you to use for his glory. Not just your stuff, your very soul is what the story tells. Your very existence has been given to you by God for his glory. It is on loan and God will call the loan due for an accounting when we least expect it. So let me try to be a little practical about this. How do we live like God owns it all? What does that mean? Well, it starts with the mindset. It starts with the wake-up call that says, you know what? I'm accountable. I am not the captain of my own fate. I am not the, the, uh, the owner of anything. My great purpose and joy is to use what God provides for his glory. Living rich towards God means that we're living to leverage all that we have for his glory. And that is life. Life is God has given me life. Now, how can I use this best use this life for him? There is freedom in that. There is security in that. There is everything that people are chasing in stuff and things. It's all found in saying, forget stuff and things for the moment. And let's just get the mindset of God owns it all. And real life is in using what God has given me for his glory. So think about the implications of that. I'm going to ask a number of questions to you and ask you in this application section here of what I'm talking about this morning, ask you to connect the dots and make some very tangible application. If God owns it all, if the land produces, yes, we work, we serve, we're active, but we're dependent. If I'll never be independent of God, if I am dependent, if God will call my soul due, if God has called me to be rich toward him, that I'm to use what he's given to leverage for his glory, how do I do that? Okay, let me ask you some questions. What has God given you? It's gonna be different for everybody in the room. Some people, God's given us tons of stuff. Some people, God's given us relatively less stuff. But what has God given you? That's the starting place of the story. Okay, well, this guy, that's what God gave him. That's what he did. What has God given me? What has God given you? What abilities has God given you? I think this is more than about money. I'll address money, but I think it's about more than money. Because he just didn't say what happened to your stuff. He said your soul is being called to account. Be rich toward God in all of life, the scripture says. So what abilities do you have? And on top of that, given your abilities, what skills have you developed? This parable calls us to view our life this way. My abilities and my skills, they they are gifts. And how can I use them to serve someone else and to bring glory to God. Very practically, how can you use the abilities you have to help someone else solve a problem? How could you be a blessing to someone else? How could you serve someone else? Maybe it's very practical. Maybe you could make a repair for someone that they couldn't make based on the abilities God has entrusted to you. Not to lay up for yourself. God didn't give you abilities to lay them up. God did not give you the opportunity to develop skills to lay them up for yourselves. He gave them to you so that you could be rich towards him, which means being a blessing to other people for his glory. Can you help someone make a repair? Maybe you're good with numbers. Could you help someone set up a budget? 
Maybe you're good at networking and you're a good people person and, and, and you're, you've, got, you know, you've got experience with interviewing and stuff like that. Could you help someone find a job? There's people in this church that need a job. Could you help someone? Maybe you have skills to help people with their health. Maybe you can help someone get into shape. Maybe God's given you that ability. Maybe God's given you that drive. Not so that you can be in a mirror somewhere flexing. By the way, we're, none of us are impressed, just so you know. <laughs> Maybe God's given you that ability so you could help somebody else for whom that doesn't come naturally, but who wants to steward their health. Maybe you've got technological game. A lot of people don't. So rather than sit around and say, oh my goodness, they don't, you don't get that. What, what could you leverage that God's given you to be a blessing to someone else to help them? Maybe even to be an open door to communicate to them why you would help them. Because of the grace of God, what God has entrusted to you, what he's done for you. Maybe you can cook. Maybe you can meal plan. Maybe you can shop, uh, you know, uh, on a budget. <laughs> But say maybe we can shop. Somebody said, Yes, I can do that. He just called my name. <laughs> Honey, I'm taking the credit card. He, it was in the sermon. I'm serious. <laughs> I meant maybe you can manage your household. Who could you help with that? There's people that don't know how to do that. So taking your skills and abilities with an earthly mindset is I'm going to use all these things for my benefit, for my happiness, for my success, for my security. Christianity says you're a steward. That means you're given gifts to manage. So how are you going to use those so that when you stand before God, he says, what did you do with what I gave you? And you say, I served, I invested, I gave, I emptied myself. Jesus empties himself. I gave my life. I laid my life down in practical ways for others to help them, to love them, to honor you, to honor you and to represent Jesus to them, to communicate the gospel in word and and deed. The gospel must come through word. But I wanted to demonstrate a lifestyle to open a door to tell good news. That's the Christian life, and it's completely upside down from the culture. What has he given you in terms of relationships? See, we can take relationships for granted. They're a gift, even the hard ones. How can you invest in a relationship? How can you befriend someone in very special ways to take an interest in them, to listen to them, to encourage them, to lovingly have that difficult conversation that you're avoiding having with them that would really benefit them? Not living passively, but thanking God for relationships and investing in them. What about your marriage? We just had a slide today, an announcement about marriage. What can you do for your spouse to invest? Say, your spouse, I recently did a wedding here, and the whole theme of the little homily, the little charge I gave to the couple was marriage is a gift and your spouse is a gift. Live your whole marriage with that in view. It's this parable. I didn't use this parable, but that's what it is. The whole thing's a gift from God. So how can you invest, care for, love, grow together with your, your, your spouse, your kids if you're a parent, your small group, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. Who do you have relationship with? And so the, the question is, like, I need to look around me and say, where has God put people in my, lives, in my life and what do I do about that? Instead of just blindly going along like, well, those are my friends and my the, people to make me feel good and secure. 
Now I find my life in giving my life away to them. What things has God given you? Has God given you a car? Who needs a ride? Who needs to borrow it while theirs is being repaired or if they don't have it? Has God given you a house or an apartment? How can you extend hospitality? How can you use your kitchen and your living room and and, uh, a spare bedroom? How can you extend hospitality to others? How can you welcome Christians into your space to build relationship, fellowship, friendship, grow together in the Lord? How can you invite unbelievers into your space to befriend them, to love them, care about them, um, so that they know a real Christian? Or maybe you know a real unbeliever. How can we use what we have? Our possessions are not to show off ourselves. Our possessions are not to win the admiration of others. Our possessions are to be leveraged as gifts from God for the good of others and for his glory. So what do you have? Take inventory of what what do you have that you don't need that's just sitting around that someone else needs that you could just give? Maybe you do need it, but somebody else needs it more. How can you use what you have for God's glory? What do you have that someone else needs? That never occurs to the guy. Did you notice that in the story? It never occurred that, wow, I can't store all my crops. Maybe God wants me to do something with the extra, which means I've got to plant and harvest next year instead of saying, instead of saying I, I'm good forever, I'm independent of the Lord. Maybe I'm going to have to depend on God next year, but I'm going to take what I have and give to someone else. Maybe he could have done that, but he didn't think of that. He just thought bigger barns. He didn't think who's got needs. Man, can you relate to that? I can. Oh, here's a windfall, some money that came in that we didn't expect. Here came a possession. Well, what can we do with this? Do I save it for for make, make a bigger barn? What can I use it on for me? It's mine. It's been given me by God. Do you have finances? Not just things, but finances. What would being rich toward God look like? I haven't talked about this since we moved into this building at all. I think I said thank you uh, to to people since we've been here. But um, we're sitting here today in a facility in the center of our city, teaching the Bible, preaching the gospel, singing praises to God, welcoming people. Many of you are new New people are coming, people who don't know the Lord, people who are finding out about the Lord, people who are coming back to the Lord, uh, people who aren't connected to a church or looking for a place. And you know, we're in this location, in this facility today doing this because a number of people were rich toward God. A number of people thought long-term, thought generations, thought beyond themselves, and they gave, invested their finances to construct a, a building that would just be, this is nothing more than a tool, a facility to facilitate the ministry of the gospel. So right now we're just sitting here because there were lots of people, many of them in this room, who were rich toward God so that we can gather and worship. How's God calling you to use your finances? Certainly includes giving sacrificially to support our local church. If you go to another church, your local church, wherever that is, Uh, it's beyond that. It's supporting those in need. It's supporting people in um, taking the gospel to other nations where people don't know Christ. How's God directing you to invest your resources rather than squander them? How about your relationship with Christ? 
What Bible knowledge, what Christian experience do you have that you can share and help someone else follow him? Oh, I don't know much about the Lord. I'm, I don't know much about the Bible. You know more than someone. If you're a Christian, you know more than someone. Who can you invest in? Who can you take the knowledge and say, it's not, I'm not just accumulating knowledge to know more, to better my life, to be the smartest guy in the room when the Bible question's asked. Whatever God has taught you about himself, it's so that you will dispense that to someone else. He's not just looking to get a lot of spiritually fat Christians who know a whole bunch and just gorge, gorge, gorge on Bible study and teachings and music and the, the praise stuff and whatever, just get bigger and bigger, bigger Christian. He's wanting us to receive, digest, apply, share. That's why we have small groups. So we come together so that we're sharing, so that we're bearing one another's burdens. It ensures, or it doesn't ensure at all, it attempts um, to build a church where it's not all about me. It's not all about consumers getting personally filled and fed. It means I sit in a room and I help other people apply the scripture. I bear other people's burdens. I share my heart. I hear their heart. It's because we're a family and we're growing together. It's because we're not individuals at the buffet line just trying to fill up. We're trying to know God and share. So what about your relationship? What could you do? Who could you pray with? Who could you text a scripture to? Who could you give a book to? Maybe you read a book, it's helped you give that to somebody or buy them a copy and keep it for yourself. But who could you give to? Who could you pray with? Who could you invite to church? Who could you invite to small group? See, what do you have? Look at everything, tangible and intangible. What do you have? It's to be used and invested. Now, the natural question when you read this is like, wow, well, if I really, what if I did what I think is probably the right thing and didn't just store it forever? And you should say for retirement, by the way, you should plan. Again, that's a different sermon. We're talking about a hard attitude here. Uh, so I'm not talking about it's wrong to have a 401k. Uh, I actually think it's wrong not to prepare. That's what the Bible would teach. So I'm not saying that. But the question is, if you say, what do I have? And you start leveraging and using it, then the thought does kind of come, right? Well, what about me? If I'm supposed to be thinking about what about me, glad you asked. Jesus knew you were going to ask, so look at the next verse. Verse 22. He wrote the book knowing you were going to ask that. So verse 22, and he said, this is what he says right after the story, therefore do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, which are not a great bird. They neither sow nor reap. That means they don't plant or harvest. And yet they have neither storehouses nor barns. Right back to the story. They don't even have a barn and yet God feeds them. Oh, how much more value are you than the birds? He feeds, God feeds the birds, but God died for you. That's the difference. Hey, I'm going to take care of everything. Just look at the plants. Look at the birds. That's the next thing he's going to talk about is plants. Look at the birds. Look at the plants. I took care of them all. But what you need to know is that Jesus died for you. He's got you. He cares about you. He's not just going to put clothing on your back and some food on your table. He is going to rescue your soul so that when your soul is called of you and it is required of you, when, you, when the loan is called in, you will stand before God and say, well, I never could have paid back the loan, but Jesus paid for me. And you're going to stand before the Lord welcomed into the Father's arms because you turned from sin and believed in Jesus. 
Jesus. You receive new life in Christ. See, Jesus is where we find our security. He is the reason for our life. He is the meaning of life. He is where we find joy. He is the one where we trust and experience him that gives us the freedom to not make life about stuff and things, but to make life about the giver of life. That's why Paul promises us, this is God's promise in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how we, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's saying if he gave, it's argument from the greater the lesser, if he gave the greatest thing imaginable, if he sacrificed his own son and poured judgment for our sin on his own son, if he did that He's got your electricity bill, he's got your new job, and he's got enough to give you so that you can leverage experience, relationship, gifts, abilities, skills, money, possessions, Bible knowledge, whatever. He's got enough to give you so that you're going to be able to give. You can give to others. He's got you. That's why five chapters later, Jesus is going to say, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. That's why the parables, they reveal this upside down kingdom that Jesus says you win by losing. You win by giving your life away. You gain by giving your life away. The meaning of life is taking the gift which was never yours to begin with, the life which you never created and you can't sustain, and using it for God's glory. He owns it all so we can stop grasping. In a metaphor that may not be totally appropriate in church, we're playing with house money, okay? He owns everything. He's got everything. We're playing with house money, so start spending for his glory. Start investing in others. You can't lose it. You can't give away what God has given you and lose it. You only gain by giving it away. You only find life by losing it. You only find security by trusting him and not the things that make us feel secure. It's an, it's an illusion. It's a delusion. And that's why God says anybody who plays by those rules, anybody who believes that philosophy of life, you're a fool because you're acting as if there is no God. And he has demonstrated he is eminently worthy of our trust. And where do we see that? We see it on the cross and we see it in an empty grave where Jesus gave his life for us. And if he did that, will he not take care of everything else and empower us to leverage all that we have for his glory and his good? Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.